Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I have the great pleasure of talking with a Mohawk social worker, old friend of mine, Taylor Goodleaf, about what the fuck is going on in Canada right now. Uh, welcome, Taylor. Hello. Welcome. So uh, let's just jump right into it. Um, what is going on? For those of you who are not our listeners who are in uh, Australia, the UK, New Zealand, we've got listeners in the States all over the place who are not in Canada, um, you may not know, but Canada right now is, there are uh, protests all over the country shutting down rail lines, highways, bridges, all sorts of things. Um, all of these are uh, sort of sympathetic protests for, uh, well, Taylor, why don't you explain what's going on and why it's going on to the best of your ability? Well, to the best of my ability, um, the people in BC, the indigenous people are being, um, I guess they're being taken advantage of once again. Um, you know, they're wanting, the government is wanting to put a pipeline down and there is argument between uh, hereditary chiefs and band councils all over BC, but uh, predominantly in the one community of uh, Wet'suwet'en. And uh, right now in Gunawage and Tandonega, Gunastage, basically all over uh, Mohawk territory, we have been well, me, I'm saying me, but the people who are in the community have been uh, setting up blockades either across the train tracks or we have students at McGill and Concordia who are also um, protesting in the city. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of action happening right now in support of the people in BC. Okay. Um, wow. So much stuff to unpack. So um, as our listeners may or may not know, a major issue in Canada for some time has been that there are a lot of fossil fuels, a lot of um, either the tar sands or crude oil or natural gas in Alberta and British Columbia, um, a lot. Um, and 
there the big problem though is that it's landlocked and so it's how do you get these this natural gas or this crude oil how do you get it to market mm -hmm. and the most obvious way to get it to market is there's a number of ways that they actually do it but the most obvious way to get it uh, to market en masse is to build pipelines from Alberta or BC northern BC um, out to the Pacific Ocean and then put it on uh, put it on ships or process it a bit and then put it on ships and send it off to market so uh, this most recent thing is there's massive natural gas reserves in northern BC mm -hmm. around uh, Dawson Creek I think it was and like and so they want to um, take take this natural gas send it in pipeline um, through BC uh, to get to the Pacific Ocean where they will then liquefy it and then send it to market primarily to China if I remember correctly so, but in order to do this, they have to build the pipeline and it passes through a I'm number of, okay, can you explain, this is something that a lot of people, even my, my students are just like kind of scratching their heads. What is unceded territory? It's just, it was never given up. So therefore the, the Canadian government doesn't have a right in, in the hereditary chief's eyes, in the traditional council's eyes, they have no right because that land was never given up. You know, they're, and I, I don't know about BC, but I think they're very, um, like, specific to that province where there's, like, they have a weird situation with treaties or no treaties. It's it's not the same as over here. However, unceded means unceded. It means it was never given up. So because they're saying uh, we never gave this land up, you have no right to use it, they're, the, what what tends to be missing from all of the media coverage is that there was not only one, I think there was two alternate routes that, uh, that were, you know, provided and those were ignored. That would have, we wouldn't be in this situation right now had they maybe taken that into consideration. However, it was just no. So it's one thing to be in the media and say like, you know, look at these Indians doing this again, blocking everything. This is so inconvenient. Whereas, actually, we didn't just start blocking things for no reason. This was this is the last straw, as it always is, um, because the the suggestion wasn't wasn't taken. So it's you know it's it's not right to just portray this one side. But of course, that's the media's job. So well, when I when I brought this up in class, the first thing that students said, a couple of students said to me, they're like wait a minute, hereditary chiefs? And they said, so is this like if the, you know, British Parliament uh, decides to sort of, I don't know, uh, join the EU or not join the EU or do so, or, or go to war or not go to war and then the Queen decides to like cock block them? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like it, is this, when you say hereditary chiefs, is it the same way that we think of like the British monarchy? No. So, so that's the, the difference between that is in the British monarchy, right? They have all the say. And, and that's one thing to say that hereditary chiefs have all the say. It's not true that they have all the say. It's they have the last say, but they're the ones who are supposed to be speaking on behalf of what their people want, right? So the, this whole hereditary thing has nothing to do with like 
you know, coming down from men or anything like that. It has to do with the clan system and and how you're born into it. And that's you're just born into it. It's not the same as you're a king or you're a queen and you have all this power. That's not it's, it's not a ruling power. It's more of a delegation. Okay, because the are you can tell me you know where I'm wrong here, but what I was told talking to a bunch of different people trying to like make sense of this, they said basically um, the most of Canada and the states, the kind of the Europeans made like treaties with various like native groups, and then they, you know, those treaties some of them were just ridiculously sleazy, whatever. But they violated them. But in a situation like that, if you've got a treaty with the Canadian government from like, like, whatever, like 1898, you can at least go and say, here's the agreement. You didn't stick to any of this shit. I want to get paid. Like you didn't, like you screwed me over. You didn't follow this agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, as you rightly pointed out, in BC, it's a strange situation because most of the land, there's no treaties. Like, basically, they just gave it to settlers to to move in and mm-hmm. and live there. They didn't have a treaty, right? And they just told the a lot of the, the sort of indigenous people to go onto reserves, right? So the reserves are a creation of the Indian Act. They're a creation of the, the government. government. Uh, and so the the argument that I've heard is that the band councils have jurisdiction over the reserves, mm-hmm. right? And then the hereditary chiefs, they claim jurisdiction over the the whole area in BC, uh, the what what's done like area which is the size of New Jersey mm-hmm. in BC, and they claim to have jurisdiction over that whole area of unceded territory. Mm-hmm. So um, what I heard was that the pipeline doesn't actually pass through any reserve. It passes through this unceded territory. Mm-hmm. And so the argument was that uh, the these band councils and these reserves, they don't have jurisdiction over that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hereditary chiefs claim jurisdiction there. Yeah. So they were, the, the argument that one person said to me is they said it's sort of like um, if you were to go to a bunch of small town mayors in Quebec and say, hey, Jean-Guy, I'll give you like a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. They're like, sign on here, right? Mm-hmm. And they sign, and then you go to the Quebec government and say, oh, by the way, we're building a pipeline right through Quebec. Like, what? Uh, I never said that was cool. Oh, we've got s- signatures from... Like, no, yeah, that's, that's a good comparison. The province has jurisdiction here. You, I don't care what these small towns said. Yeah. Like, the pipeline's not passing through any of those small towns. Yeah, and, yeah, I think that's a good comparison for people who wouldn't understand. Like, that's perfect. Um, but I think, like, the main the main problem is, like, right, we, everybody was forced onto these reserves. It's like, you created these reserves, you forced us on them, told us we couldn't leave for X amount of years, right, put Indian agents on there, took our land, even though we were still on reserves, you still took some of it for highways and railways and whatever else you want to use. But you still can't find a way to stop coming through the territory. It's like just like you have all this other you have all this other territory. But because it inconveniences you, well, we'll just put it here. Mm. You know, the natives can deal with it. Which well, which has always been the case. Like, right? It doesn't even matter. You like we were talking earlier about how Mohawks have always been 
uh, kind of seen as very, as very strong, as, uh, you know, ready for, for anything. But I mean, all that, not that long ago, the same thing happened to our reserve, right? In Gunawage. It's so small already. And they, they took more land for the highways, for the 132, for the 138, for the 207, for the 30. All of those highways intersect this small territory. Why do they? Why? What, then they took the. Then they took all the land for the uh, expropriation for the the Mercy Bridge, and then they took the the train. So the it's all through the territory. So it's it's not just like also the it's giant not just, power line. Yeah, the power lines. Which the you power know, line. I remember my son Tristan when he was like I mean seventeen now, but when he was super little, we were at um, we were walking around the the rapids like in La Salle, you know the. Like all the Lachine Rapids area. Um, and we were walking down there and he's just a little kid. And he immediately, he was like, why is that giant power line crossing here? Like he must've been like 10 years old, like nine, 10 years old. And he's like, why is the giant power line crossing the St. Lawrence river here? That's not a logical place for it to cross at all. He, it's like, shouldn't it cross like on the east end or, or in the center of the island? Or there's all these other places that it makes sense, and yet it diverts and it crosses, you know, in La Salle onto the to mm-hmm. like where you live. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my god, that never even occurred to me. Mm-hmm. And so I went and like I asked some people, and they're like, that's because that's where the Indians live. They basically were like, we would get too many complaints Mm -hmm. if we passed, put this like incredibly high, which makes a buzzing sound and, you know, people wouldn't like it. That's why it crosses there. Mm -hmm. It's just such bullshit. Like, yeah, the train tracks literally go right behind people's houses. It's like, it's it's so close. So it, and every time a train passes, you know, the horns blow. So it's like your, your house shakes. Like that's just. That's just what happened, right? So it's every, like, how often are we going to do this? That's that, I think that's how I feel as an Indigenous person is, like, every time this happens, it's like, oh, my God, we're doing this again. We have to do this again. We have to do this again. Because you just can't stop. Like, what do we just give up? Like, you can't just give up, you know? And I think that mm-hmm. that was what was so infuriating about uh, the chief from Gunasadage. Well, like, whatever was happening in Gunasadage, because he had made some statements about, well, like, well, you know, everyone should just, we should just take the blockades down and, you know, we should just, you know, before everything gets too, like, let's just take it down. And that's not our mentality. That's not who we are. We don't just say, all right, let's just pack it up. That's not how it goes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's what I was sort of, Thinking because you know a lot of people were like complaining. A lot of people that I that I know and I see online stuff like that were saying, "Well, this is this is ridiculous. Like you're mm-hmm. you're screwing so many people over. You're stopping down. Tr- There's like rural communities that are actually running out of like food and resources because the trains and and highways are shut down, and especially you know because there's all this like really snowy weather and everything. And you know I understand that protests are inconvenient and i definitely am not like a unqualified supporter of protests i think there's a lot of stupid protests like mm-hmm. i think right i look at charlottesville and see like these white supremacists again you know protesting and i i don't think people protesting are necessarily good just because they're protesting right i think there's dumb protests 
But I do think, an immoral protest, but I do think in this situation, uh, none of us would be talking about any of these issues if the protests weren't happening. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, sometimes you have to like slap people in the head before they actually pay attention. You have to somehow make things inconvenient before they actually notice what's going on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I, I hate that. Like, I wish, I wish we could just pay attention without needing to be slapped, but right. But no one gives a shit unless they're slapped. Right. So unless it affects you, you don't really care. So that's why, that's why people do what they do. That's why they're protecting the land. And it's not just for us, you know, and that's what, that's what's, and people get that. I'm starting to see that. I try not to read all the bad comments cause it's uh, not good for my mental health, mm -hmm. <laughs> for my road rage. But, uh, I, <laughs> I try to read some good comments, uh, from allies and people who support, uh, the protectors. And they understand that, uh, you know, these, these blockades, they don't happen for no reason and that they are for the benefit of everybody. You know, it's, you can, you can make all the money you want. It's not going to matter if there's no water, if there's no land, if everything sucks, it's, what is the point then, you know? And, and, and then, then, then it switches on the radio station to, oh, like this corporation just lost like hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's like, so what? So what? It doesn't matter. It's not going to matter at the end of the day if everything's gone to shit. So, like, that's what people need to understand, you know. It's it's for everybody. It's not just for indigenous people. It's for non-indigenous people. It's to protect everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that definitely, for me as somebody who has a, a deep, deep connection to the St. Lawrence River, I mean, my my wish is when I die, I want to be cremated and I want my ashes to be thrown mm -hmm. off the bridge into the St. Lawrence River. I, I have a deep connection to the St. Lawrence River. And if somebody wanted to put a pipeline like along the St. Lawrence River, I would get, you know, I would do a lot. I would do probably almost anything to prevent that from happening mm -hmm. because I know that wherever this has happened, pipelines are, I mean, Humans aren't perfect. Technology is not perfect. All pipelines, they, they break down, especially when you've got extremes of temperature like we have here, really hot but summers, it's like we cold have winters. All of this... And when they leak, you're screwed. Yeah, you, you can't fix it. Up for like, a long you can't time. fix it. Right? Well, you can, but it takes like, you know, a generation or two. Like, it's yeah, really and, and messed up. Yeah, and who's going to pay for it, right? The people who are right there, yeah. they're, they're going to pay. It's not going to so be... So, as a general rule, I think... Um, you know, it's like Nassim Nicholas Taleb says, right? Like, you want to have people that have skin in the game. So mm -hmm. you want people who have a stake in that land, in that place, to be making decisions. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they're always going to make the right decisions. But it means that because they have self-interest involved, they're more likely to make good decisions. And if they make bad decisions, they have to live with the consequences. Mm -hmm. The worst people to put in charge are multinational corporations that don't give a shit about this place and will just move to the next mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. Like, they're just trying to extract resources and profit and move somewhere else. And so what that means in practice, as John Ralston Saul, the Canadian philosopher, points out, what that means in practice in Canada is that most of the time, you know, if not all the time, it makes sense to ally yourself with the indigenous people because 
they actually like want to live in this place, you know, you know, forever. They want their kids. They we actually want to live here. They actually want to live here. They're not, they're not like, you know, like this is, this is the thing I've always said, like Yimber, I would say this in class, right? At John Abbott. Uh, it, when people would say like, whenever the, the Quebec separation issue would come up in class, I would always say, um, you know, all right, how many of you in this class are in favor of separation? And this was like back then, right? And you'd mm -hmm. get like about, you know, maybe a third of the class would put up their hand. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, how much, how many of you are against it? And, you know, the majority, you know, like two thirds of the class would go up. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, how many of you want to move to Ontario mm -hmm. or, you know, want to move away from Quebec? For, you know, these are English West Island kids. Mm -hmm. Like, how many of you want to move away as soon as you can? And about a third of them would put up their hands. And I'm like, okay, the third of you just put up your hands. You don't matter. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're planning on leaving, what you think about the future of this place doesn't matter, mm -hmm. right? And that's like Taleb's point, right? Like, if you have no stake in this land, you don't want to stay here long term. Yeah. Who cares what you think about the place, right? Yeah. And uh, and in, you know, usually the indigenous people in a place because they have a history in that place and because they they want to be there long term, they probably are going to make better decisions about how to be a steward of the land. But okay, but this this raises a, a weird question with regard to this BC situation. So apparently, I don't know if this is true, but this is what I've I've heard thus far. Apparently 65% of the indigenous people in this area are in favor of the pipeline. Like that it's it's not just that all but one of the reserves mm -hmm. have voted in favor of it. Uh, it's that the actual like if you think about it in terms of democracy, the uh, the majority of the people in the region are in favor of the pipeline. Mm -hmm. And so the the estimate I've heard is that um, it's about thirty five percent of the people in this area are against it. Mm -hmm. So why should that 35%? I mean, we had a referendum in Quebec to separate mm -hmm. from Canada. It was incredibly close, but, you know, about 51% voted to stay in Canada, so we stayed in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, if what I'm hearing is correct, about 65% mm -hmm. of natives in this region are in favor of the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Why should the 35% Sway. It's because people are looking at it through a Western lens. That's not, that's Western democracy. Oh, well, like there's more percentage on this side, so therefore we win. That's not Indigenous democracy. Indigenous democracy is we figure out what's going to happen so that we can all live with it. That's when we come to consensus. Consensus is not 65 to whatever. That's not how that works. So people need to take their glasses off and put the other ones on and and try and switch their thinking because that's where the thinking is wrong. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like, oh, yeah, it's like yeah. you know what I mean? Like it doesn't matter what well, the, I mean, the number is. Again, this there is are John Rawls and Saul's point. He's like, right. referendum is not democracy. It's not. It's not. So and, and I'm sure they didn't pull every single one of those people in those territories because like I said, you know, like a lot of people do not vote. They don't take part in anything. If the bank council says, yeah, 
doesn't mean that everybody agrees. It's just a select few people who are saying, yeah, right? And that's the problem with bank councils. So um, I would say those numbers are not accurate. And I would also say even if they were, it doesn't matter because there's still that percentage of people who said no. But as I was saying to you when I was talking to you earlier on today, uh, <laughs> and I wasn't saying this as an accusation. I was just saying this like, oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> by your logic, by your Mohawk logic, um, most of the democratic institutions in Canada and the United States are illegitimate. And I don't know how to make sense of that. I mean, I love... Uh, Valérie Plante, Projet uh, Montréal, the mayor of Montreal. Um, but, you know, she was elected by, I, I don't know what the percentages are. I can't remember what they are. But in most municipalities in North America, you're lucky to get like 20, 30% of eligible voters who show up to vote. Mm -hmm. um, and then in provincial elections in Canada or state elections in the states, you know, you'll get like, I don't know, maybe 30% of eligible voters show up to vote. And then in federal elections, you get, depending upon uh, the election year and how fired up people are, you might get like, you know, 50%, 60%. But so if you're saying... So basically it's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> but okay, okay, but legitimacy is always a squishy thing whether it's in a monarchy or a democracy or an aristocracy or an oligarchy or you know whatever right a communist dictatorship you know with the party in power or something like that legitimacy is always like a slippery thing but my my question is how can you ever get anything done in any political community if you have to have like a hundred percent of the people or, or like let's let's not even be so utopian like but it's not a hundred percent it's just it, it's not that everybody has to agree it's just that let's come to a compromise where we can all live with this decision and that's what's not happening right now but how can that ever aside from small groups like i've seen consensus work with uh with small groups mm -hmm. and it's incredible incredibly time consuming and you it is time have consuming. to like go on for days and days and you know you eventually get to a consensus and i gotta say by the way that the times that i've participated in sort of uh, what were called like traditional native consensus building i wasn't totally happy with the result i got the impression to some extent like People who, you know, like me have like really big mouths and can like talk for hours and hours and hours and never fucking shut up. I feel like people like me end up sort of talking a lot of people to death. Like they just <laughs> like they just die of exhaustion. Like, OK, fine, fine, fine. Like they just like they get talked to death. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure if consensus always necessarily like produces a result that everybody's great with i think maybe a lot of people just get kind of bullied into going along with the majority or exhausted into going along. Mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. um I but the still point is it takes time it takes, it takes time. I, I get that and I get that, that and right now it's like everybody is being but once you get rushed. a bigger once you get a bigger polity 
you get like a critical number of of humans it seems like that consensus model is just completely unworkable like instead what you have to do is you have to elect representatives mm -hmm. and then you have to get them mm -hmm. to go off and come up with a consensus that right. they can live and with. it can be complicated right but the whole issue right now is that the rcmp is in that territory what they're saying is get the rcmp out of our territory and maybe then we can talk you know but they're not doing that. But the haven't RCMP, they been talking for a long time? They've been talking, but this is this is not what they're asking right now. It doesn't matter. Like the RCMP is still there. And the RCMP in the eyes of indigenous people is the devil. It's basically the devil. It's evil. It's whatever. It's however you want to look at it. It's no good, this entity. So like how can you expect anybody to have a rational conversation when you got snipers outside? You know, we don't have mm. snipers on 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 them. So let's uh, let's backtrack here. You know, so that that I think that is another issue that's critically left out is maybe a lot of people don't understand what the presence of police um, does, especially if they're um, you know creating sections of places where there aren't any media allowed. That also adds to it, right? So it's like, where else does that happen except in northern BC? Or in a place where, you know, is usually off the radar otherwise to the general public. Yeah. And that's scary because, you know, given our history with RCMP, uh, starlight tours, you know, driving people, uh, indigenous people off into remote areas and leaving them there so they can freeze to death. Uh, you know, people, the the issue with uh, Valdor and the police there. Um, yeah, yes, Thunder too. Bay. That was crazy. Everybody, just just police in general, the presence of police being there and uh, them not leaving, given our history, is very concerning, I think, to most people who are Indigenous and who are... I think that's the main reason why everybody is digging their heels in, is because, like, you're not hearing us. You're not even... You're not even seeing the connection. Mm -hmm. That's what's well, so frustrating. I, I, I definitely, you know, having lived through the Oka crisis here in Montreal... Um, where you know, I, I can't help but draw parallels, right? Because the difference is, is that um, the the Mohawk had lots of their own guns, and that just changed everything, right? Like I, I when I looked at the things that were happening in New Brunswick a couple of years ago, and now in BC, it's such a different dynamic when the government has. You know, is coming in with the RCMP and stuff like that, and they have the snipers and they have mm -hmm. the guns and they have the the sort of well, monopoly on the use of force. And then here, when you had the land dispute mm -hmm. and the Mohawks had tons of snipers in the trees and guns mm -hmm. too, it sure, just changed the sure, dynamic. Completely. But this has only been two weeks. This has only been two weeks in BC. There was a standoff. Oka was three months. Yeah. So, you know, after three months, people are going to start getting their shit out. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I so, don't know. does anybody want it to get to that point? I really don't think so. I really don't think so. I think people just want to handle this and get the RCMP out and well, find, we'll a, different, we'll find, a, find mean, a different route. I, I remember, you know, growing up in Verdun, I remember like it always, you know, and I, I don't, I don't like, I know I have like, you know, I have friends and former students who are cops and stuff like that. I don't mean any disrespect for you. I know you have a difficult job. I know, uh, you know, all that stuff. Uh, but I got to say, you know, growing up in the southwest of Montreal, it was very telling to me when I was a kid and I would see the way cops would treat 
the bikers, the members of like the Rock Machine, Hell's Angels, and West End Gang and stuff like that. And oh my God, did they treat those people like, differently? Like royalty? Uh, no, <laughs> just they kidding. just treated them with respect. <laughs> mm-hmm. They didn't push them around. They didn't fuck with them. Well, they owned them. Because though people, those, no, no, not even that. Not even that. It was just like they knew these people can hit back. That's what I mean. These people can shoot back. These people have, so they would treat them like, like with respect and they would talk to them in a certain way that they would, they would talk to, you know, other people are very different, like my black friends or my, like, like my Mohawk friends or my, they would just treat them horribly, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, we used to have like a, like a little scam that we would run, like in the malls where we would have like this one black friend of ours and he would like that went to school with and he would go in like with like looking really kind of like, like hip hop doubts, you know, with mm-hmm. like, like a rapper and listening to loud music and public enemy and stuff like that and making lots of noise. And all the people in the store would follow him because they're like, oh, he's going to steal stuff. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, we would, you know, follow and steal everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. And then we would like go back to the, the metro and divide the goods and mm-hmm. everything. But, uh, and I, and I had, you know, I had a number of times when I was a kid where I'd be like walking, uh, to Angro Metro or to like, you know, with like some of my like native friends and like we would get pulled over all the time by the cops. And I, I just remember seeing when they were dealing with people who could hit back or shoot back or had, they just had a lot more respect and they were more careful. Well, and it gave me the impression that they were bullies. Well, this is so, yeah, know? yeah. I mean, it makes you think sometimes, why do you go into that field in the first place, right? Um, not to say that everybody's like that, but, you know, makes you think. Um, but this whole issue that we're talking about, about the land and about protesting and protecting and doing all this stuff, it's so much bigger than just this one issue and so much bigger than just the land and rights and all of these things. Like it has to do with systematic oppression. It has to do with the RCMP. It has to do with the government. It has to do with everything. It's everything. You can't separate them. They are all the same to us, you know? So it's like we're talking about specifically like police and government presence and how, you know, people get treated differently. Um, I mean, even when I worked in shelters in the city, I worked in indigenous shelters, I was afraid to call the police. I didn't want to call the police on people when I had to, you know, if they were threatening me or whatever, because they're intoxicated, I won't let them in, you know, things like that. You have to do your job. But at what point, sometimes I would have to call the police. Like, you know, I did it probably a handful of times, but I don't ever want to. Right. Because I'm scared. That's scary for me to have to call the police on, you know, my fellow uh, brother Inuk. I don't want to do that. But sometimes it calls for it, you know, but I'm but I'm afraid. So and and, and that goes to say uh, for what we were talking about earlier about how I was speaking to a couple of my old classmates who live in B.C., indigenous women. And they're terrified right now to go outside, to be alone, to walk in the streets. It's. Because it's of all scary. the hatred and there's the so much hate, and then it just, it just gives because there's not an understanding. There's no understanding there of the history, the context, whatever. We can go back to education, how nobody knows anything, right? Like, like even just being in John Abbott College as a 16 year old in your classroom, like having those arguments with people, you know, like for the first time in their life, they're 
speaking their opinion out loud about indigenous people and they don't think that an indigenous person is in the room. <laughs> so like it just that goes it just goes to show. That well, that's why I like that I can yeah. blend in because sometimes you know people don't know who I am. Is she Hispanic? Is she Hawaiian? We don't know. <laughs> so then I could just like pop in and be like, "What did you say?" You know? Surprise. <laughs> so, yeah, but I I like to use that because and that and that's why I always try and stay quiet until the end. Right. So I would listen. And that's I think that's like maybe a value that maybe we just have or that I have um, is you kind of wait until the end. You listen to what everybody else has to say. And then you make a decision as to what you what it is you want to say, because then you have the most leverage. Right. You have you have the, the most leverage at the end because you've already heard everyone's opinion, which I feel indigenous people don't always get that privilege. Right. We're usually the last to be listened to. Mm-hmm. What do you think about, um, I know this is like a huge question, but like, what do you think about Justin Trudeau? I mean, he came in, Mr. You know, teary-eyed reconciliation, going to lots of communities, going to make this shit right, going to like, you know, make everything right. And now I see him, he's looking at all these protests and he's saying, you got to respect the rule of law. And you have to. <sighs> what the fuck? I think it's such shit. I think it's such shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, but like, I don't even know how to like. I, I don't, don't even know how to make sense of it because like Stephen Harper. I, I feel like, you know, I hated that guy, mm-hmm. and I never voted for him. I would never vote for him. Um, but I feel like there was there was a, at least an honesty there. Like you knew where you stood with Stephen Harper. But this guy, it seems like he comes and cries and gives you a hug, and then well, honestly, fucks this is the state you. of like, everything. Doesn't actually. That's why it's such through. a joke. Like you know, he can just dress up in whatever costume and do whatever he wants, and it's all okay because I shook someone's hand and I took a picture. And it's the same thing with Donald Trump. It's all the it's all the same. It's like I can't even listen to the radio anymore without just laughing. Like <laughs> it's like what, the, what is going on? Like I don't I don't know I don't know. I really, I just feel at a, at a loss. It seems funny. It seems like it's entertaining. It's also very scary um, because, yeah, you don't know where you stand with this guy. He makes all these promises. But, you know, you, just my opinion, I never trust any politicians when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, you know, I think, that, like, good leaders don't need lawyers, you know. And uh, <laughs> I think that... I think that he just says what he can in the moment to get his votes and to get the handshake and to get his photo up and he's on to the next thing and he has an agenda. And right now the agenda is let's make money. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I asked one of my classes this morning about this question and uh, got a lot of really interesting perspectives, you know, from these young people. One of the students, a Cree student, she said, um, she said, well, you know, um, she said, yeah, Trudeau's definitely been kind of a disappointment for my community. But she said, I would take him over Harper uh, because, you know, I basically said the same thing I just said to you. And and she said, well, at least because he's like put himself out there as that he's going to be an ally and he's all for reconciliation and all this stuff. Because he's put himself out there for that, um, at the very least, we can kind of like call him on his hypocrisy and say, 
live up to that stuff that you're saying. And that gives us like a little bit of leverage with, with Trudeau and with his government. If it was Harper or Shear in, um, these protests would have been shut down like right away. No, because they we wouldn't, wouldn't have, have had, been shut down. They would have been ugly. It would have been very ugly. Yeah, had, had no, those two guys shut down been in, in there. a really ugly way. Yeah, exactly. And so she was saying like... Um, Which I agree, right? I would have taken him any day over those two. I'm sorry, Justine. But, yeah, and she's, you know, she but said basically if I had a she's like, you know, I would... I'd rather have hypocrisy over cynicism. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like, that's, it, who's there? Who's sitting there? It doesn't matter. Like, it's all going to be the same. So that's why, like, they're, they're really... It doesn't ever seem like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And um, I think that's why people just, just keep going. Like, we've never gotten tired. Like, we're tired, but we keep going. Like, we're just going to keep going, you know, because we have to. There, so it doesn't matter who's sitting in that chair. They have their interests and we have ours. They have theirs, but our interests are everybody's interests. Whereas theirs are for Canadians. That okay, doesn't include is, Indigenous people. Like, like, I mean, what would you, for you, what would be like a great solution to like if you're gonna make problem? if you're gonna make the pipeline, make it somewhere else. They already gave you options, so do it somewhere else where it's not going to ruin. If you're gonna do it, you know that's what they're saying. Like basically, they're saying uh, nobody has a choice. We're gonna do it no matter what. Okay, do it, but do it somewhere else then. No, I mean a solution. Like I'm, I'm asking you to solve all the world's problems. Oh, okay. like, right now. No, no, I mean like, what would be a solution to uh, the kind of perennial conflict in Canada uh, between kind of the Canadian state and the provinces and the and oh the my god, John, are you really doing this right now? <laughs> no, I'm just I'm curious because like I actually I I've thought about this quite a bit too, and like I don't I don't know. I mean, I think you know. Until, I think I know until Indigenous people are recognized as sovereign and to have you know control over what we do in all aspects, then, then that then things will be different. Who knows if that will even happen in this lifetime? Like the Indian Act still exists. I don't know if the Indian Act will ever not exist in my lifetime. I would like to hope it would not exist, but then everyone's like, "Well, what do you replace it with?" Like I don't know, but it's not that. You know, it's not that, and I don't have the answers to everything. It's just, you know, we have so many issues um, provincially and federally with with jurisdiction, with police, with the social services. Like, you know, Gunawaga is lucky because we have uh, kind of some control over our youth protection, right? Centre Jeunesse and all of that, you know, DPG. Mm -hmm. So we have some jurisdiction but we don't have all jurisdiction so like for example in other in other communities they're being investigated by outside people this isn't like things signal maws or you know when you get, you get signaled by somebody through youth protection these in other communities these are, these are being looked at by non-indigenous people predominantly who are not from the community outside the community so those are just some of the issues right like this is not, like I said, it's not all just about land. It's about sovereignty. It's about letting us do what we know is right for our people. Um, and we just, we are still fighting for that. It's it's never, it's never happened. And I remember, I think I was sitting in your class, or maybe it was Roy Fu's class. And of course it was police tech students. And we just finished talking like four weeks about indigenous issues in Canada. 
And then he raises his hand and he says, like, so what do these people want? And I was just like, flip a table. You know, that's how I felt like, have you not been listening for the last four weeks? Were you not here? Like, we just want our right to do what's right for us. We want our own sovereignty, which we already have it. We don't need it to be given it. But on a on a public scale, I guess, on a federal scale, like at what point do these legislations end? At what point do we get to say what we're doing? Well, what bugs me is, uh, you know, one of the things that bugs me in classes is I get students, actually students aren't so bad about this, it, it, but people bring up and they're like, well, you know, we're giving all this money to these communities and, you know, they're Who's Not giving the money though? This is this the, is what the I, federal government. This is always like what I hear. Us oh, taxpayers are paying all of this. Like your taxes are going to your roads and whatever else you do. Th- these treaties, which this is how it just goes to show how much how much people don't know, those treaties were signed for those reasons. We will have health. We will have uh, access to social services. You know, education. All of these things. Those are inherent rights, just like anybody else. But all of a sudden, because it's indigenous people, it's oh well, it's out of my out of my tax pocket, you know, mm. and it's not. Well, I mean, the the question I always bring up when people say that is like, uh, there are, um, you know, like uh, the guy I was telling you about, you were like talking to David Schultz, right, my friend, David Schultz and I were talking about this a couple of years ago. Um, if you go, he he wrote this whole op-ed for the Globe and Mail where he had gone to this like rural community um, on uh, on an island in the middle of the St. Lawrence River, and it's a small community. They don't have any major industries. Um, they, you know, they basically are supported by the the Canadian state and the Quebec provincial state, and they went in there and it's, it's a white community, an Anglophone community. And even though it's an Anglophone community in Quebec, uh, in Canada, isolated, uh, they had like top-notch garbage removal service, which was like twice a week. They had like perfect drinkable, like drinking water. They had a nice, shiny new elementary school and high school, even though it's a community of like couple hundred people um and they had brought in like teachers from you know that, that studied like mcgill and u of t and so, stuff like that had like the great teachers that are paid really really well um and so it was like this shiny nice canadian mm-hmm. small town mm-hmm. uh, nobody was telling the people there why don't you move where the jobs are Mm-hmm. Like nobody was telling them to leave. Mm-hmm. Nobody was telling them, but this is a community that is like remote mm-hmm. and that uh, basically can live at a Canadian standard of living because it takes in a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, it's amazing to me that like all these indigenous communities like up North and different places, uh, they don't have proper garbage disposal. They don't have, proper schools they don't have drinking water Mm -hmm. that boil their water like all the time um and when people complain about it they say well why don't you move down to like montreal or toronto or calgary where the jobs are but in fact if you have a big country like canada 
you need to keep people spread out uh, or else you can't maintain your territorial sovereignty. Like you need to have people living in those. You need to have people living on Baffin Island mm -hmm. or else like. You know, the Russians or the will claim, or we'll it. claim it. We'll move in if well, you got nobody there. Well, see, that's interesting. But also, you know, because of Cindy Blackstock, we all know now that indigenous kids are incredibly underfunded compared to non-indigenous children, point, yeah. right? And yet, the government has spent so much money trying to shut out Cindy Blackstock, uh, trying to keep her from, you know, going to court with them and lied about how much money they spent <laughs> trying to keep her out of court, right? So it just it just goes to show. It just it just goes to show and it's like all of these things that are happening now, it's so inconvenient. It's so inconvenient. Oh my god, we're not going to have water, we're not going to have milk, we're not going to have any any kind of whatever, all the stuff that we need, we're not going to have it. Well, now you know how it feels to live in a remote indigenous community. That's how it feels every day. You know. Yeah. Suck it suck it up, it's 2 weeks. Well, That's how a, I feel. That's yeah. how I feel. It's it's like, oh, oh my God, it's such a shocker because we're in Canada and oh my God. And I've been in arguments with people on Facebook about um, like people who I thought were friends, right? About uh, food security and food access in the north and just remote communities. I'm not talking about Nunavut. I'm talking about, you know, northern Ontario, uh, you know, these places. And how much... Um, like a gallon of milk costs, how much, um, you know, anything, how much of a head of lettuce costs. Um, and I've been told that I, this, that's not true. That, that's like, I'm, where did you get that from? That's not true. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> they show them pictures. They have like, I had the pictures. pictures. Yeah, yeah, I had the <laughs> picture. It still wasn't good enough. Yeah. But, but the prices are kind of insane. And, and like... my favorite, my favorite argument is uh, when people, you know, try and say like, Oh, well, there's so many, uh, you know, there's so many Inuit people that are just drunk downtown in Montreal. I just see them all the time. Why don't they just go home? Or why don't you just move somewhere else? Why? What are you doing? Okay. So up north, right, there's so many people. We have a overpopulation of homeless people in Montreal because it's one of the closest cities where there's a hospital, where there's jail, where there's whatever you need. It's here, right? These people come from flyaway communities. If you get uh, sentenced for a crime, you're not going to do time up north. You're coming to Montreal. You're doing time. Correctional services will pay for your way here. Guess what? They're not paying for you to go back. And people say, why don't they just leave? Why don't they just leave if they're so poor then? Or, what, you know, why don't they just go home then if they're tired of being homeless? Well, it probably costs about two to $3,000 to, just to get there. So if you're already homeless and you're already poor and then you get sent here... How are you ever going to get home? And then you're constantly ticketed for loitering or being drunk in public because you've probably never been to a city in your life. You probably don't even have a stop sign where you live. How do you expect these people to get back? Yeah. The system is completely broken. And then these people end up in revolving doors because they get turned away from shelters or because it's too full or, uh, you know, they'd rather get a ticket and spend the night in jail because at least that's a warm bed and a meal. So that's what we're looking at right now in Canada. Wow. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I just, do you think it would, like, go sort of some way towards fixing things if we just sort of automatically said that, you know, all of these lands, uh, the indigenous people who have 
right? Do they get like all the mineral mineral rights, all the rights to that particular land? No, because you can't just give people money and expect it to fix everything. All right, well, here's this settlement. Oh, Indian Day School settlement. Here you go. Oh, you were in the 60s scoop. Here's a settlement. Here you go. What are those people going to do with that money? They never had money in their life, probably. And you give them a bunch of money. It's going to be gone. It doesn't solve the problem. What you should be doing is putting money into programming, putting money into health, into social services, into education, into water. Because first of all, nobody can learn if they're not drinking water or eating food. So like, what is the point of all of this? You know, like they have to look at the how are you really going to solve this long term, put money into programming programming for to for people to be healthier to take control of of their own health in whatever way that is that's culturally appropriate for them the only people who can decide for that is the people who are going to use it because what i've heard from a lot of a lot of indigenous students at, at john abbott college is they talk about like these great settlements that quebec made with you know native group up around like james bay and the creek communities and, the, and what they did is they took that money they bought airlines so that they no longer had to like pay that three thousand mm-hmm. dollars like themselves and they weren't they they bought the airlines they bought a lot of the kind of institutions mm-hmm. they set up this like super tricked out like the Cree school board is like unbelievable but now. the Cree had to give it's, up their land to do that they needed to give up their land to get that money We've but never, they've done some pretty boss they, things right with that but money. but what sacrifice at what sacrifice you know it's like I don't want to compare it. Like I, 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 the they didn't give it all up, but they had to give up something to get that right. And it's like, yes, they got this money and all of that stuff, and they used it properly. Good, I'm glad. But for they, you have to think of their land base, incredibly huge. You look at Mohawks, for example, or any other First Nations that are not Cree incredibly tiny territories. We don't have the luxury to do that. We're fighting the government to give us land back all the time because there isn't enough. Mm-hmm. And we're f- the f- one of the fastest growing populations in Canada. So like what you know really? yeah. Well, I remember like when you were in my class there was that whole issue where they had to like kick some people out of the community and mm-hmm. uh and it was you know it was sad and it was it was kind of, it was messy and stuff like that. But one of the things that became clear to me when that was happening was just how small the territory, like postage stamp, like territory they actually had. It's like, you know, of course you're you're having to play musical chairs and kick some people out. It's like, yeah, like nothing. Mm-hmm. It's like this small, small, and it's largely like swampland. It's not. Yeah, and that's a, that's another point of it is, yeah, we have a we have a little bit of a land base that we have in Gunawage, but a lot of it is swampland. Obviously, they knew that. Well, one of the, uh, you know, Annalisa, my wife is like really into like urban agriculture and all this stuff. And so I've learned a lot about that stuff from her and, and the, the Montreal area. And apparently <clears throat> the Montreal area, more than any other urban area in Canada, the Montreal area has a huge amount of arable land in the in the land around Montreal, like big big chunks of land that are uh, perfect for agriculture and are not being used. And I mean, what if what if there was some sort of an agreement where they basically just gave huge chunks of this land like back to? Well, I said like 
we're not using it. Why don't you do some shit? <laughs> like, I mean, do that, some... that would be nice. I know it would be nice. But do you think that would move towards reconciliation? It I would mean, be that... a step. <laughs> it would be a step. I don't think it would solve everything, but it would be a. It would be a step. Yeah, because be I, I just, I have like all these like weird conversations when I talk to people about things like you know reparations payments for all this stuff and and reconciliation and i mean one of the hurdles i get is that there are you know i have like francophone friends here who say um and i know this like will sound to some of the listeners like absolutely crazy but this is real um there are people who say that all the indigenous people in quebec are here because the french people invited them here and they the french people are the indigenous people of quebec and that there's nobody here that I'm not joking. There's people that say that with a straight face. Mathieu Bocoté, like he says that, like Mister, like hardcore right wing separatist, you know. He says that with a straight face in interviews. That that so we funny. invited them here. You can were, you can invite him here. Yeah, right, next time. No, like, See if he comes. No, no, he's, he's not coming. Here. <laughs> he's um, not coming. But uh, he blocked me on Facebook. He, he doesn't want mm-hmm. to hear from me. But uh, but no, the like. So there are those people, but in terms of trying to get to some sort of workable future, like what do you see is like the path forward? Because I hear like tons of conversation about everything that's wrong. I'm just wondering, like, what do you see as sort of ways to move forward? Like, I mean, one obvious one for me is Let's just say that every community in Canada, regardless of whether they're indigenous or or white or anything else, every community in Canada should have drinking water. That's you can turn on the tap and drink it as safe. Every community in Canada should have regular uh, garbage disposal. Every community in Canada should have you know, just basic things of a first world like it amazes me you probably saw this too when you were in your private school like uh you have these like west island kids who like go to africa and take their facebook cover photo of like uh here's me building a well in africa and i'm like surrounded by all the like and you see this and you're like dude you realize in your home province there's places that don't have clean drinking water you didn't have to go to africa to Bring clean yeah, it's in your own backyard. Yeah, you could have like just so. I mean, that seems to me like an obvious one. If we just say, "Hey, let's just make sure the regular shit of like a first world civilized country." Let's just water, make food, sure, shelter, education. Okay, we got let, it. Yeah, let's make sure everybody in this country has the shit, like yeah. the regular <laughs> shit. This right? is the regular shit. Yeah, like the regular shit of like a first world country. <laughs> Goal number one. Yeah. Um, but. You know, that's pretty basic. And, and, and that's stuff. just like the ultimate hypocrisy of Canada, right? Is that like I appreciate people who go to other countries and try to help other people. I am sympathetic and empathetic to refugees who are coming from overturned countries. None of this shit is their fault. Right. It's the way that the government wants to spin it. It's the way that the media wants to spin it. And indigenous people aren't saying like, forget the refugees or forget the other you know, the other countries, we're not saying that everybody needs help, but 
you need to take a look in your own backyard and see what the hell is going on here because this is not right. And if you feel defensive about that, then you need to take a good look in the mirror and think about where that's coming from, right? Mm. It's like Andrew Shear and his privilege spiel that he said, I almost <laughs> I, I almost just, you know, recommended him to uh, Comedy Central. <laughs> it was pretty funny. I couldn't it even. Was funny. I can't even. <laughs> just it was shut it, it down was like, it was like in my dream scenario i wanted to see sheer break into like like a dave Chappelle skit but him saying that was even better yeah it was it, was. <laughs> right? it just just just, like, just nailed that coffin shut yeah i know but i i see what he was he was trying to sort of like sort of use the the weapons of your enemy against them like mm-hmm. some jujitsu shit you mm-hmm. know like like so they should check their privilege. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I, I get what he was trying to do there. It just, it didn't land. It didn't land. But so. Oh, and that's another thing that's so frustrating about him saying that is like, that just goes to show that people don't understand. They, ne- they never had to fight for what we're fighting for. You never had to do it. The people that are there that I know of in Gunawaga, they have jobs. People are taking shifts. People are waking up super early to go in before work. People are bringing coffee. They're bringing food. They're bringing firewood. Okay, I got to go to work. Your shift's up. People are switching shifts. It's not like the world stops because the people are protecting something it just means like all right we're gonna organize ourselves and people are taking shifts and we're gonna make sure somebody's always here the fire's always going that's that's so that's not, real teamwork you know yeah. this isn't the government wannabe teamwork that we're talking about this is yeah. real teamwork that no, you see I, I, I you know totally, i totally hear you I so mean, it's such a crock of shit to say like people need to check their privilege because they're not privileged enough to go to work oh my god like yeah they're going to work they're getting up early and they're going to work and they're coming back when they're done yeah, I mean, like I was looking at some of those what you call like the kind of the, the hateful, horrible comments, like it's just and stuff like that. But it's like just funny. one of them, which the one that I I posted, which was just like completely murderous and insane, where he was like, "Yeah, if you're at a blockade, like I'm gonna I'm gonna run you over because I'm on my way to work to pay for your welfare, mm-hmm. and the only regret I'll have is like having to." clean off like what's left of you on the front of my mm-hmm. truck and stuff like that just like some crazy such a tough guy so KKK tough shit. i'm like, shaking in my boots yeah really really like <clears throat> it was totally insane and yeah. the thing is is like if this was just some rando you know thing i would assume as you should assume in 2020 that uh you know this is like a russian like paid troll because we know that like there are troll farms in St. Petersburg that will pretend to be Black Lives Matter activists. Mm-hmm. And then the person sitting next to them is pretending to be a white supremacist. And they will pretend to be a Quebecois separatist and complain, pretend to be an Alberta Tarzan person. They're, Hence illegitimacy. Yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> trying, they're trying to, like, screw up Western democracies by, like, you know, encouraging divisions. So mm-hmm. normally if I saw something like that, I would assume um, this is either a Russian paid troll or this is somebody who's off their meds. No, but you know who it usually but is? It's people from like Western guy. Canada. Yeah, I actually know <laughs> this guy. That's what I mean. And I know that he's like normally a normal person. And so it's just like, how can you 
be saying something this insane. Like, I mean, what you're saying is is like sort of threatening murder. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're basically threatening premeditated murder. But online. see, those are the people That's who crazy. you just you can't waste your time with them. It's like it's like you know in the classroom. Um, like you said, you had a student in your class who uh, you were talking about missing and murdered indigenous women, and he just wanted to flip the whole argument and be like, well, what if native men are the ones who are murdering indigenous women? What then? Will you build more jails? Will you do this? And it's like, what does that have to do with the life that was lost? Like, who yeah. cares who did it? Somebody did it. That's not the point. The point is, like, these women are going missing. And if you're going to spend all this time preparing, pre-preparing this argument and coming up with numbers and statistics and, you know, correctional services statistics and whatever else this guy was coming up with to create his his argument before he got to this class, like, what the hell are you even doing in this classroom then if you don't want to learn yeah. If you just want to come here and tell us how you're right, you're in the yeah. wrong room, buddy. So if Santa Claus is like Jeffrey Epstein combined with the lizard people, <laughs> should we still believe in it? That's like, what, that's what it's I mean. Like, it's like, like what are totally you doing? Like, like, just get out of the room. Get out of the building. You're not, yeah, like, you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> so, I mean, if, like, you know, once again, like, like kind of a, a pat, you just finished getting a degree in, in social work and you deal with a lot of these populations. You deal with, with women who are in crisis and stuff like that, who have coming from, you know, dangerous situations and have like drug problems and emotional problems. Like, like do you, when you're dealing with these individuals, uh, I've dealt with situations like that too. I, I worked at Project Bal and Verdun. I, I worked with people with mental health problems and with like, who were, transitioning out of institutions and homelessness and all that stuff. And I mean, when you're looking at stuff like that, do you see just kind of individual pathology and like problems and stuff like that? Do you see systemic problems? Do you see a mix? Do you like, what is the fix or what is the, like, how, how do you kind of make sense of what you're fighting against? Oh, God, I don't know. That's a loaded question. <laughs> like, I, I come from a very unique perspective where, like, I have my educational background is in corrections, and then it's in human relations, and then it's in social work. And I come from an Indigenous background. Um, you know, w- my parents went to Indian day school. My grandparents, probably some of them only went to school for a little while, and then they had to work right away. You know, I come from uh, a divided community as well you know Gunawagi is not perfect yeah we far from perfect but we know when to come together and um I just feel like all of these issues cannot be separated and when I'm working with somebody like it's not like oh this person has a pathological problem it's like I am that person I can easily be this person that I'm helping any day of the week or my cousin or my friend or anybody any I could anybody could be this person so like I don't think of it as a pathological problem I think of it as this is a systemic problem this is a historical problem this is this is what intergenerational trauma is and we're dealing with it but with trauma comes resiliency so you cannot have one without the other and that's the only reason why we're still here is because we're so resilient 
And um, I think the all, what is the solution? The solution is um, we just be human. Like we just be human with each other in that moment. Uh, whether it's I'm in a room with somebody and we're talking about something personal or, you know, there's a politician and uh, a protector having a conversation. Like just be a human. That's that's I think that's what everybody forgets all the time. It's always like this political agenda or you did this and you did that. It's no, it's like, <laughs> let's just just be be a human for once. I cannot imagine a more beautiful way <laughs> to end than right there. That was that was wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, uh, you're welcome. You uh, definitely have to come on again. Yeah, this is uh, not over. I have, like, <laughs> I have like way more, way more stuff that I want to talk to you about. But uh, thank you so much. And um, it was a pleasure. All right, take care. Awesome. Bye.